Today on Blue 58, here's a question for you. Did the Vikings embarrass the Packers, or did the Packers just embarrass themselves? Here's a second question. Which one would be worse? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, and I'm happy to be with you here for another episode. It's kind of weird how a 24-10 game can feel so close, but also impossibly far away. I think just with how this game played out, you can sit here and really say, string a couple more plays together and shoot, you're in business. 24 to 10 is not that far away. And yet, looking at how the Packers played in this game, it's really hard to envision them stringing any amount of plays together. This game only felt close because most of the Packers' problems involved getting in their own way. And it felt far apart, the Packers and Vikings, that is, because of Well, basically that very same reason. The Packers just kept getting in their own way. That really has to be the theme of the game. It was a little bit late getting sat down for this one, but the first few things that I saw really... I thought The first thing I thought when I saw these two sequences of plays is that's probably just going to be how this game is. Those are going to describe the game pretty well, and that's basically how it worked out. Packers' first drive. Second and eight play, A.J. Dillon goes off tackle for seven yards, setting up third and one. So it wasn't the first play of the drive, but they set up third and one. Jordan Loves goes deep for Romeo Dobbs, 20-yard gain. But wait, Rasheed Walker ineligible downfield. No play. Okay. Third and five. Well, third and six, technically. Well, it has to be a four-yard penalty. So it is the four yards there. So third and five. Jordan Love goes incomplete. But there was a defensive offsides, only four yards for whatever reason. That's how it appears in the official play-by-play. Packers again face third and one here. A.J. Dillon on third and one goes up the middle for no gain. And just for good measure, Corey Ballantine, Ballantine is off yards, or off, not offsides, has a false start on the, uh, on the punt. So penalty on the Packers, penalty on the Vikings. Run for no yards, penalty on the Packers. Packers end up having to punt or end up punting on that drive. Okay, a little bit sloppy out of the gate there. We can get the ship righted. Well, next drive, Aaron Jones goes off tackle for four yards, sets up second and six. Not too shabby. You're staying on schedule. Maybe you want a little bit more on first down. But on second down, Jordan Love tries to check down to Aaron Jones in the flat on the right side. Clang goes off Aaron Jones' hands. Looked like a bit of an awkward catch, but also looked pretty accurate to me. Can't really put much on Jordan Love there, if at all. Aaron Jones really taking credit for it after the play. It's a drop on second down. Sets up third and six. Third and six is exactly what we want. There's pre-snap motion. It's an empty set. Luke Musgrave is in the slot on the right of the formation. He's got an advantageous matchup and working across the middle. He gets himself open enough that Jordan Love looks his way on third and six and incomplete. Either a drop by Musgrave or a good play by the Vikings defender. In either case, the Packers come up empty. Another three and out. Two situations that are just emblematic of how the Packers play today in so many ways. You've got penalties and discipline problems. And I think we need, we are at the point, we are well past the point where we can really have this be a youth problem. Penalties like these, a false start on a punt, going downfield on a pass, Those are not I'm young penalties. Those are I'm bad at football penalties. You can talk about coaching and discipline and stuff like that, and we will here in a second, 
But those are just, I'm not doing my job correctly penalties. Now, maybe you want to put some of that on coaching, but these are not complicated things either. You've got guys letting down your quarterback. Elsewhere in the game, you've got Jordan Love maybe not playing particularly well. This is, of all the games that we've seen from Love this season, this is the one where I felt most that Love was throwing off-target passes, but everyone else was playing so badly that you couldn't hardly tell. We had a good question from regular Discord user Papa Roo in our Discord server today asking me any excuse. Do you see any excuses that people are giving Mac Jones that you wouldn't also give to Jordan Love or that wouldn't also hold up for Jordan Love? Well, at least in Mac Jones' case, he's got some veteran help. Kendrick Bourne and Hunter Henry are his top targets, but today Jordan Love's top targets were Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs. Three months ago, he'd have said that you're doing pretty good there. You've got some second guy, second year guys with some promise. What is that promise good for here in year two? Well, in week eight, it's good for 17 targets that went for seven catches between them and 51 yards. Romeo Dobbs did have the touchdown, but it took plenty of attempts for him to get there as well. Watson goes 0 for 3 in end zone targets, contested to be sure, but 6-5 with athleticism like he has, he should be coming down with at least one of those, and none of them felt particularly close. If you want to play the game, blame game. And that's a tough one for me. That's something we've resisted. But say you're going to play that game, how would you dole it out for this game? That's what you want to do. Here's how I would break it down. I think it starts with Brian Gutekunst. This is the team you've put together. And everyone knew the ceiling on this team would be lower than in the past. But I think this should still call into question where the team is in week eight. It should call into question your ability to assemble talent and evaluate the talent that you have. I think then you have to look to Matt LaFleur. A consistent criticism for Matt LaFleur from this podcast this year has been that he needs to coach the team that he has, not the team that he wishes he has. To be fair to Gutekunt or to LaFleur, it's still not clear what the team that he has is actually good at, if they're good at anything at all, and how you would build on that even if they were, because there's so many things going wrong on a given play. But that sounds like just eight different coaching issues wrapped up all into one. That, I think, is going to be an evergreen criticism of Lafleur throughout this season because I really don't see a scenario where they suddenly figure out, aha, this is the team that we should be, these are the things that are working, and they actually implement those things. Worth pointing out, I think, that this is the second year in a row that Lafleur has had a losing streak of at least four games. And I think we have to ask ourselves how many coaches have done that and then gotten a chance to do it three years in a row as in getting a, another year after having two years that were bad enough that you lost at least four games straight. I don't think it can really be a long list. Maybe there's, there, there are some exceptions. Maybe there are some things that I'm just not aware of out there. It could be. I mean, there are a lot of things I'm not aware of out there, but there can't be a lot of good examples, I guess I'm saying, of coaches that had month-long losing streaks in consecutive years and then were like, in the third year, were back to being an elite coach, especially after having previously been pretty good. There just can't be a lot of guys who have reversed situations like that, and I'm not sure. I think we need to be open to the possibility that we may not need to give Lafleur a chance to reverse that trend. It needs to be a conversation, I guess is what I'm saying. Then finally, the players. Everybody gets a little bit of blame here. The, the guy who put the players together, the guy who's coaching the players. But I think the players themselves deserve some blame here. Even if the coaching is good, and there are questions about that, 
the problems that they're having, again, cannot fully be blamed on coaching, and they cannot really be blamed on age or experience or anything like that. Contesting 50-50 balls is not a coaching point. In Christian Watson's case, I think you got to like, ask for a little bit more effort there, especially, well, it's, it's the Brandon Jacobs story that we've, we've told again and again. If you put a full-length mirror on the sideline and said, Christian, just look at yourself. You should be out-jumping these guys, out-muscling them for the football, but you're not. Why? Consider that. that. That's not a coaching thing. Jump higher. Go after the ball more aggressively. Those are things that you shouldn't have to explain to somebody. It's your job to catch the football. False starts and holds are not, I wouldn't say, necessarily coaching issues. People point to a lack of discipline. And I think probably kind of have a point there that is there is some cultural aspects of that to a football team where these sort of penalties breed and multiply. But it's still just basic football stuff. Those of you who played organized football at any level, at what point in your season preparation, did you start working on the snap count? It's like the first thing that you work on every training camp at every level of football. I started playing football in sixth grade. The snap count was one of the first things that we worked on after a three-point stance. It's just elementary, literally elementary football stuff, both in the figurative and literal sense. There are elementary school kids who work on these sorts of things. When you are paid to do it, you should be able to get it right without your coach saying, hey, remember, this one's on two guys. Get it straight. That's something that you should just be able to handle by yourself. So, the Packers lose to the Vikings. feel my temperature rising a little bit here. I didn't think this was the sort of the game that would really get me going. But maybe we are going to be in for some rants today. So maybe this is a good time to off-ramp into three good things. I've actually got four good things to talk about. Not big good things, but... Good things nonetheless. We try to focus on at least a little bit of positive stuff in every game. Here are three, four things for you. First thing, Yash Nyman coming on. Early in the game, Rashid Walker was not getting it done. Yash Nyman comes on at left tackle. They tried. They at least tried something. And of course, Yash Nyman got hurt, had to come out of the game. Later, Rashid Walker's back on there in the fourth quarter. But hey, at least you tried, which is more than we can really say for the Packers offensive line to this point in the season. They have not really shaken things up much at all. At least today they tried. Aaron Jones got 12 touches today for good thing number two. I didn't feel great about a lot of them. I think a lot of them were kind of wasted on inefficient plays. But at least we had one thing right. The guy who was the Packers' best offensive player was getting the ball the most. Packers also had a blocked field goal today. At least two on the year. Not bad. And then the run defense. There's plenty of bad stuff coming about the defense. But the run defense... Kirk Cousins today, the only Viking who averaged more than 2.1 yards per carry. As a team, 31 carries for 62 yards. That is the Packers' best defensive effort, I think, against the run all year. Pretty good. Switching over to the bad, though. There's plenty of bad to go around in this game. And it, it sometimes it feels like belaboring the point to go super deep on the bad because everybody can see it. What is the new revelation anybody is going to bring about how bad this team is at this point? They can't do anything on offense. Their defense, even when they do play well, still seems so disjointed and so out of alignment with their offense that it doesn't matter. Even if they're holding a team to only 24 points, there's no feasible way the Packers' offense seems to be in a place to score enough to make that matter. It just doesn't... It's not a football team that you really can talk about in a way that it's like, 
hey, here's how we can improve. And that was something I struggled with when we did the, the episode on Friday, talking about what the Packers need to do to get things back on track. What foundation is there for this team to build on? Theoretically, you know, a month ago you would have said, well, if we can just get Aaron Jones healthy. Well, Jones has trended towards healthier and healthier, and they can't seem to find a way to get him going because the offensive line can't get pushed in the run game. When they use him in the passing game, it's just so limited and uncreative that it doesn't really matter. I mean, when what is the best target you've seen for Aaron Jones this year in the passing game? Probably, no, it's easily, I know what it is. It's the fourth and three play against the Bears in week one. That was the only time they've ever used, it feels like, Aaron Jones this year in a meaningful way in the passing game. They also had the throwback screen in that game, but as an actual receiver, not just a guy waiting for the ball to to come to him so he can run with it, kind of in an extended handoff situation, but as an actual receiver, that fourth down play, he runs the little choice route, a, a Texas route, an angle route, out of the backfield, whatever you want to call it, and it was because of his unique attributes as a player that he was able to make that play into what it became. We haven't seen that since then. Even if you, like, theoretically building on Jones is going to be your foundation for this offense, but they can't do anything with him consistently enough to build on it. It's just a play that works from time to time. And that's about the best thing you can say about the Packers offense right now. What about bad stuff? If we want to say bad stuff about the Packers offense, that's a good place to start with the bad. Offense just putrid on the first four drives. Word that does not get used often enough. Often, often enough. Putrid. That adequately describes the Packers' performance on offense in this one. Three plays, nine yards to open the game. Three plays, four yards on their next drive. Three plays, two yards on their next drive. Three plays, 11 yards after that. It By that point, you want to talk about digging a hole, that's it. There's your hole. The Packers are in it. It's not like they finished the game much better either. Last three drives, three drives, turnover on downs, turnover on downs, and turnover on downs. Now, I realize you're trying to be aggressive at the end there, but they could not cash it in even for a field goal at one point in this game down the stretch. Next up for the badness tour here, how about the passing defense? I wanted to include this in the in the preview episode. I thought it better to focus mo- mostly on the Packers on Friday. But I had written down somewhere, either in a notebook or a note on my phone or maybe in my Google Doc somewhere, that Kirk Cousins is just the perfect quarterback to take apart a Joe Barry defense. And he's going to do it in such a way that you hardly even notice that it's happening. And at the end, you're going to look down and he's going to have some really nice looking stat line. It's not even going to feel like it hurt all that much. And here we are after he comes out of the game early with an injury, 23 of 31, 274 yards and two touchdowns. Not some spectacular story, or uh, not storyline, stat line, but still pretty darn good. Just eight incompletions, nearly 300 yards. He would have passed 300 yards had he stayed in the whole time, I think. And two touchdowns. More than good enough. And Kirk Cousins is no dummy. He may be limited as a quarterback, but he's experienced enough. He's, chalk it up as like survivorship bias here, but he's lasted enough time in the NFL that you know he's doing at least one thing right. And he's experienced enough that you say he's probably seen just about everything there is to see as a quarterback from a defensive perspective. You're not going to really throw anything at him that's going to surprise him. And Joe Barry, it seems, is never going to throw anything that surprises anyone at any offense. So Kirk Cousins is going to do what he always does. He's going to take his his dropbacks, and he's going to very conservatively put the ball into the right spot and let his guys do the rest of the work from there. 
honestly, probably work pretty well with Kyle Shanahan. He's going to be your robo QB who's got a little bit more arm talent, and he's going to get things done for you very nicely and politely, and you'll come up there at the end of the game, and if you don't score enough points, they'll probably just grind out enough to beat you. The Vikings have had more than a few games like that in the Kirk Cousins era against the Packers. Jair Alexander, I would say he probably had another down game here. It's really hard to tell, and I would caution you for making any big sweeping statements about Jair Alexander's play uh, just from watching the game on the field how, or on, on TV and stuff like that. You, you really have to dive into film if you want to study defensive backs. However, he ends up at the wrong end of a completion often enough, often enough that I think that we have to start saying that questionable is both his injury designation and a fairly accurate description of his play at this point. Again, hard to separate play from scheme, but it does seem like he is ending up in these situations pretty frequently. Finally, to round out the bad things for today, just as a blanket statement, I think you have to put the Packers' prospects for improvement under the bad category. I keep hearing Matt LaFleur say the Packers are close. I keep hearing Jordan Love say it. Zach Tom said it post-game today. I have said it. And maybe they are. But to kind of return to our question from before, what would they have to do to get closer? What are they going to do that's going to close that gap between close and effective? You can just say play better, but duh, yeah, everybody wishes they could play better. What is the thing that they're going to implement that's going to get them over the hump here? And I really don't know. And I don't know if they have the capacity to do it. Close might just be how everybody is in the NFL. We've talked repeatedly over the years about how the gap between a good team and a not-so-good team is a lot smaller than you'd think. And it just seems like right now the Packers are on the wrong side of that line. Yeah, maybe they're close, but maybe that's just how it is in the NFL. Close is not good enough. You can't just be close. And if you don't have a plan for bridging the gap from pretty good to actually good, close is all the closer you're going to get. And that, it seems, is where the Packers are right now. It doesn't seem like they have anything they can build on that is going to close that gap for them. So as we ask after every game, what does it all mean? I don't know about you. Maybe you've been here for a while. Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're holding out hope that the Packers can go on a run here and make the playoffs or something. The NFC looks pretty dismal. I'm not sure there's a real contender for that seventh spot right now in the NFC playoffs, so it's still technically wide open. And at, what, 2-5 and five now? The Packers could go 7-3 and three the rest of the way. Uh, that would get them to, yep, that would get them to 9-8. and eight. We play 17 games, so that's, that math seems to check out. That may get you into the playoffs. That seems like a pretty big ask for this Packers team. I will just put that out there. So, I am not super confident that that is a realistic thing to hope for. And I think if we're we're looking for anything at this point, we're just looking for improvement. So, if you look at what this game means, I think we're at the point where we have to start thinking about the rest of the season as essentially preseason. We're looking for jobs here. Who wants one? If the Packers are really honest with themselves with where they are as a team, there are more people who should be making a case to have a job next year than they would probably like to admit publicly. And that applies to everyone, from the general manager down to what roster spot number 69, if you count the practice squad, plus all the guys on IR too. 
I think also related to that, that the Packers should really consider selling at the trade deadline. We know for sure that the Packers aren't going to, well, we don't know for sure. We can't say that absolutely for sure. We know more likely than not. How about that? We know more likely than not the Packers are not going to be playoff contenders realistically this year. So I think among the guys who have expiring contracts or maybe have tradable deals or whatever, you have to at least listen if someone comes calling. If someone says, hey, Rasul Douglas's deal is pretty palatable for this year. His contract year for next year is not terrible for a guy his age who plays the way that he does. We think it could be a real asset to our defense. What do you think? I don't think you can just hang up on them. If somebody really comes and wants to blow your socks off with a deal for his, one of your big name guys, I don't think you can just say no out of hand. You've really got to consider where you are as a team, how realistic it is for you to be better next year, and whether or not the person you're talking about is going to be a real asset in 2025, as we talked about last Wednesday. That is not a an admission of failure. That's just doing your job as a general manager. And sometimes doing your job is going to involve you admitting that you made a mistake or admitting that you were farther away than you thought and trying a different path. The only way back is to do something different. If you keep doing the same thing, you may just end up sinking faster and you may end up finding yourself out of a job faster. If you really believe that your roster can come back, okay, that's a position that you can have, but you just have to remember the, the possibility that you may be wrong. And being wrong could cost not just you your jobs, but a lot of other people too. So you you got to at least listen, I think, if somebody's calling about guys at the trade deadline. I'm not saying there's anybody they got to move or should move easy, even, but if someone says, hey, what about so-and-so? It's at least worth having a conversation. Up next, the Packers have the Rams at Lambeau Field back in the noon slot again. If I had to guess, just think about the number of noon games the Packers have coming up. I would say we've probably seen the last of the Packers in primetime this year. I don't think you want to see Packers Chiefs in primetime as much as that would be, you know, as much as I enjoy primetime games, those are one of the few, as much as I love my kids that you get to watch actually without the interference of the kids. Um, they're not, they're not ready to watch a full football game yet. So, uh, I, I just don't think we're going to get a lot of opportunities to do that throughout the remainder of this year. Your best bet to watch the Packers on national TV is probably going to be on Thanksgiving at this point, but we've got a, a couple Sunday night football games and a Monday night football game on the remainder of the schedule. And I don't believe that the networks are just super keen to get a heaping helping of the Packers right now. Let's transition into rookie watch. Rookie class, I think fairly underwhelming in this game, except, well, with the possible exception of one, maybe two guys. Lucas Van Ness, only one entry in the stat sheet today. A pass defensed, not a tackle or a sack, but busted up what looked like the screenplay uh, this afternoon. Luke Musgrave, two catches for nine yards. He didn't, they did not get him involved in ways that I thought that they, they would or should, but I was pleased to at least see him lining up in the slot. On one target, one play that we have talked about, I guess, uh, in some length already in the show. Tucker Craft, no targets today. Colby Wooden, one assist tackle. Sean Clifford, another DNP today. Dontavion Wicks, two catches for 28 yards. Uh, chalk him up for another another good day. I see we skipped over Jaden Reed after Luke Musgrave. Reed, four catches, 83 yards on six targets. Pretty solid day for the rookie. 
I wish they would stop putting him in positions where he has to make contested catches. I was nice. It was nice to see another deep shot today, but I don't think Jaden Reed going up against two defensive backs deep downfield is really going to be a recipe for success. Uh, and it wasn't today. I, maybe it was a little underthrown from Love, but the interception really looked like a guy just taking it right out of Jaden Reed's hands, and that's probably what you're going to get when you're putting a five eleven guy up against two defensive backs in what amounts to a, a jump ball situation. Anyway, continuing on, Carl Brooks, no tackles or assists today. Anders Carlson officially one for one on field goals and one for one on extra points. Did have a miss wiped out by a penalty. And what a doink that was, the the live audio on that one. Just incredible. Sounded like he was going to snap the upright in half on that one. Really, really gave it a good whack. Uh, Carrington Valentine saved a touchdown on a kick return that was ultimately called back. Also had one assist tackle on special teams. Anthony Johnson Jr. played but had no stats. Malik Heath, the undrafted free agent, was a healthy scratch today. Emmanuel Wilson was active today, but one of two active players who did not play along with Sean Clifford. And finally, Brenton Cox did play, but had no recordable stats to speak of. Random thoughts and observations, and we will call it quits for today. Kirk Cousins' injury was a real bummer, I thought, in the the latter stages of this game. In fact, the Packers themselves were so interesting that I actually spent most of the fourth quarter honestly just hoping that Kirk Cousins was okay. It looked pretty bad right from the get-go, and then was confirmed pretty quickly after the game by Adam Schefter that it was indeed a torn Achilles, which is just a real bummer of an injury. Uh, Of all the things in football, I mean, other than like a a severe concussion or like a spinal cord injury, the, the Achilles is the injury that freaks me out the most. And I'm not entirely sure why, maybe it's just the size of the ligament, but it just, it seems horribly painful. And like the rehab would just be no fun at all as, as though any rehab could be fun. Uh, that and just getting your arm fallen on like under you at an odd angle or something like that. But uh, among the more common football injuries, I've always been afraid of a of a torn Achilles, and it was a bummer to see anybody get that injury. Uh, but Cousins gutting it out on the sideline of that game was was cool and and hard to see at the same time. So a speedy recovery for him just as a person, even if we don't want good things to happen for the Vikings. Uniform matchup today I thought was pretty good. I wish we would see the Vikings go with their their white over white uniforms. Um, I also wish we could see a color versus color matchup. This is something we were talking about in passing in our our Discord server for the Power Sweep sweep today. Uh, Houston, not Houston, Tennessee, the Tennessee Titans went with their Houston Oilers throwbacks today, which are great in and of themselves. But they also got to wear them against the Atlanta Falcons in black, got a color versus color matchup, which is exceedingly rare in the NFL. I would love to see the Packers versus just about any NFC North opponent in a color versus color game. Packers green versus Vikings purple, Packers versus Lions uh, green versus blue, uh, green versus Navy, Packers versus Bears. It'd be an old school looking kind of game, like way, way old school. But I would love to see a game like that. It used to be super common to see color on color. Now it's it's a rarity, but I think it's something that the NFL should embrace. Speaking of things that look pretty good, Jaden Reed is now the team's leading receiver, certainly not by design this year. But if my numbers are right, he's got 314 yards on the year, which is good for tops on the Packers. Comparing him to some previous rookies, Christian Watson uh, wound up his rookie season with 611 yards. Romeo Dobbs had 425. Amari Rogers, 45 yards. Uh, basically, going back 
through the last few years, the only guys who have had more than Jaden Reed has already are Marquez Valdez-Scantling with 581. Devontae Adams finished with 446. Uh, James Jones had 376. And Greg Jennings had 632. You're already back all the way to, what, 2006 there, I believe, Jennings was drafted. Um, but but Reed is putting up some numbers. Uh, there are a couple guys who are real close to his total. Like Equinomia St. Brown finished his rookie season with 328 yards. But Reed, statistically, is off to a great start in his his career. Some warts there, to be sure. Not a perfect player, but um, he, he's exciting, and he seems to make really great plays on a pretty consistent basis. He's making big plays at a, at a more frequent rate than just about anybody else in Green Bay right now. Got to finish today on a little bit of a down note. Um, you, you probably anticipated this uh, knowing what I talked about a couple weeks ago, and I'm sorry to just throw it in here at the end of the podcast. I didn't know where else to say this, uh, but given that many of you have reached out with words of support for a situation I told you about with my grandma a couple weeks ago, I thought I would update you here. I know it's not necessarily timely, but Grandma Meerdink passed away on the morning of Friday, October 20th. She was 89 years old and was just incredible in so many ways. I was very fortunate to have a wife who was willing to watch the kids for a couple days solo while I went up to Wisconsin for the funeral rather than dragging them around for just a very short trip for the funeral. Uh, But it was just, it was nice to go up there. And um, in so many situations, when you deal with something like this with a loved one, it does come unexpectedly. And I feel like the sadness is multiplied in those situations. But as as often as you try to say a funeral is a celebration of life, I feel like this was actually the case for my grandma. And that was just, it was, I think it was a relief for a lot of people. My parents, my, my dad um, was dealt with being, my grandma was one of her primary caretakers for the past year and a half since, since grandpa passed away. Um, and has just gone through this whole process, you know, over the past few years as my grandparents have been in declining health. I think it's, it's a relief in that situation for him and his sisters and all, all of those people who get to see kind of, I guess in, in some ways, a culmination of their work, getting to celebrate this great woman who we all loved so much. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't diminish the sadness, but it was, um, I would say that the whole situation was unexpectedly joyful, and I'm very thankful uh, in more than a few ways that we, we knew this was kind of the situation here. I wish that you could have known her. She was a fighter to the end and always was. Tough upbringing in rural Wisconsin. Grew up on a mink farm in eastern Wisconsin of all places. Her dad was a mink farmer, and that was the environment she grew up with. To give you an idea of the kind of situation she grew up in, she did not have indoor plumbing until she was in high school when they moved into a new house. Um, But tough as nails, uh, always loved sports, being outside. She was a very dedicated angler, loved fishing, would be out on the lake at my parents' cabin all day if she could, and also loved to do things like go blackberry picking and make wild blackberry jam. And we're not talking like a pint of blackberry jam. We're talking like by the, the multiple gallon load in the summers when she was, you know, in her berry picking prime, she just loved to put in the work, whatever she did. She was a grinder making blackberry jam, fishing, doing puzzles, making handmade birthday cards for everybody that she knew and loved. My wife's birthday was October 10th. Grandma passed away October 20th. 
we were traveling uh, when we got the news, and we also got home to see that in our mail slot had come a birthday card, uh, dated October thirteenth. Uh, the post, uh, the whatever the postage stamp on it, the postmark on it was October thirteenth. Right up there to the end, just working hard. And the last time I got to see her, she squeezed my hand and winked, and just bright blue eyes were were strong to the end. So. You know, it is sad here, and uh, we are we're mourning that loss, but um, pretty special person. And like I said, I wish you could have known her because she would have talked Packers with you. She would have listened. She was not um, <laughs> an ins and outs of the team diehard, but she loved to watch the games and loved to watch basketball, especially loved the women's college basketball tournament in the spring too. And I know I'm rambling here, and I know that this is not necessarily what you signed up for, but um, it is something that... Uh, I felt like I should let you know, given how many people so kindly reached out when I, I told you what was going on that caused us to, to miss a couple episodes in early October. But that's it. That's the end of that story, and that is going to be the end of the podcast today. I'm going to save you the usual spiel because it seems like coming out of that and going back to Talking Packers is a little bit of a, well, we've been a little bit all over the place here, but it's been an unusual couple of months here in the Meerdink household, and this kind of... Um, brings that to a close in a way that is sad, but was unexpectedly joyful in some ways too. Um, But just what a celebration of life. And she was just a great example of God's faithfulness in so many ways, uh, an impact on so many people. So I'm glad I could tell you a little bit about her. Thank you for your thoughts and prayers for my family. We will see you very soon on Blue 58, but that's going to be it for this episode. I guess we'll, we'll just say go Packers to close this one out and maybe give your grandma a call.